the constitution is the thing that protects the citizen from the tyranny of a government. The constitution is the sovereign. Okay, it's important to recognize the constitution is the sovereign, not the government. The government is just an instrument that the people have created for their own benefit. The Indian constitution is uh, the largest constitution in the world, written constitution in the, of a nation, 150,000 words. And it's written in legalese. It's not written in English. So if you were to try to read it, you cannot understand it unless you are legally trained. You have to get a lawyer to say, exactly what does this page mean? And then the lawyer will explain what it means is this. It limits economic and civic freedom and it encodes within it religious and caste discrimination. It says depending on what religion you are, you will be treated differently by the government. It is one of the most odious, most disturbing feature of Indian constitution that it discriminates against people. It will be of little avail to the people that the laws are made by men of their own choice. If the laws be so voluminous that they cannot be read or so incoherent that they cannot be understood. This is a description of the Indian constitution. Um, I'd like to talk about India's path to prosperity. And um, I know that it's a kind of a very grand title for some proposition that is going to be rather modest. So you'll have to forgive me for making a bold claim that this is the path to India's prosperity. So. Prosperity is a really modern concept. It is something that did not exist for all of human existence. Uh, it was existence before this very brief recent period. It was Hobbesian. It was nasty, brutish, poor, short and mean. And at some point, we human beings started becoming prosperous. There was material prosperity. And the reason that we have to be, uh, we care about material prosperity is not to disparage any other kind of prosperity, whether it is spiritual or otherworldly prosperity. I'm talking about material prosperity because it is, we are material beings and it's a necessary uh, condition for all round development of the human being. How recent is human prosperity? Think about it this way. That human beings have existed approximately, the modern, anatomically modern human being has existed for about 240,000 years. Now, if you consider the 240,000 years and represent it as a 24-hour day, then prosperity began just a minute and a half before the end of the day. So it's very, very recent. In the last 250 years, we have had human prosperity. And that poses a question that what, does, what did it lead to? Now just think in terms of human population. It took, took all of human history for the human population to come towards one billion people and that happened in just a little over 200 years ago. So it's very recent that we got so many billion people and it's, it took 700 years for the population to double from 250 million people to half a billion people. So you can see that it was a very slow rate of population growth. The reason that it was so slow was we lived in what is now called a Malthusian age where the population, the birth rate and the death rate were kind of equal and therefore population didn't really increase fast. Then the, after 1800, in just 124 years, we added an additional billion people. And you can see that the rate at which you are adding billions of people kept on in getting faster and faster. So we have 33 years for the next billion, 15 years for the next one, then 12, and then you can see how quickly we came to 7 billion people. Right now we are 7.7 .7 billion people. So if you look at the graph of human population for the last 12,000 years, you see that it is flat for most of its existence and then it sharply takes off. And this thing 
is a remarkable, extraordinary fact that we have to keep in mind as to why this happened, why did humans began flourishing sufficiently that the population could expand. This is another remarkable fact that most of the world's population is Asian. That is, since historical times, the majority of the people of the world lived in Asia, which is India, China, and the countries around it. So, the, before the year 1800, Asia's share of the world GDP was therefore equivalently very high because the population lived here. And since people were equally poor around the world, it is not surprising that India and China accounted for nearly 50% of the world's share of the GDP. So around 250 years ago, there's the first industrial revolution took place in Great Britain, and that started a different era of human existence. And the growth of population was a consequence of the fact that there was an enrichment 250 years ago. And the enrichment also, in a circular causation, then started increasing the wealth of the, of the world. So it was both, population is both a cause and a consequence of the wealth generation or the great enrichment. So you can see that this is a graph of all the, the estimated world GDP over the last 200 years. And you see that they are the the population graph that we had seen pre previously, it mirrors the population, uh, the population graph. So the world has been getting better consistently since then. And these are some of the uh, good numbers that you can Im imagine, like life expect expectancy has increased from 56 years to 72 years. And that too in just a relatively small, short time, just in 50 years, things has, have changed. Infant mortality dropped from 113 to 32. So that's a remarkable statistic, that 75% uh, lowering of infant mortality. Can you imagine the amount of misery that people had to go through when half their children wouldn't survive? The average income of the world rose from 3,700 to 17,500. These are numbers which have been Mm, normalized to 200, uh, 2011 uh, international dollars. Food supply increased and extreme poverty was almost eliminated during this period. In the past, most of the people lived in extreme poverty. Extreme poverty means that you just have barely enough to eat. That's about it. And your life was fairly short. And this is around the year 1800, 1890% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty and now it is below 10%. So you can see the great enrichment that happened. So amazing transformation that happened in the world and we have to ask as to why this happened now and what exactly caused it to happen. So the causes of change can be summarized in one word, and that is technology, especially energy technology. Now, what is energy technology? The story of human civilization is a story of how humans have been able to use energy. Before, in the first instance, you only had human power and animal power. And then you could use, say, wind and water and then you had other sources of energy like wood and coal. And then a little, uh, a few uh, hundred years ago, about 150, a little over 200 years ago, petroleum was discovered. So therefore energy technology, the, as energy becomes more and more available, you'll find that humans start flourishing more. So the story of civilization is the story of energy and in the future we are going to get another breakthrough in energy technology and that is fusion. When you have fusion energy 
then it becomes extremely energy becomes extremely cheap and the cost of anything at all is the cost of the energy that goes into the production of that thing everything that you pay for you are ultimately paying for energy in the past you used for human energy human muscle power and now you you have a lot more energy available and that's why the the world is richer but what exactly is technology because we use the word technology very uh, uh, often and so we need to have a good definition of the word technology understand what it precisely means so technology to give you a very precise and a concise definition of technology it is how to do something it's know how technology is recipes everything is a recipe how to do something like how to mine iron ore say then you take the iron ore how to refine it into iron and how to make out of that iron you can make steel and different kinds of steel then the technology of how to take that steel and make things out of it so everything is a set of recipes so when you know how to do something you have the technology it could be as simple as see if i know how to make sambar it means i know the recipe for making sambar i have to take this much of this item and that much of that item combine them in such a way etc so you might have the ingredients but if you don't have the technology you are not going to be able to do it so technology has these features one of them that technology is cumulative that when you discover something you have some amount of technology or recipes and then when you add somebody else discovers you get more so it just keeps on adding it doesn't kind of disappear the second thing about technology is non rival because once you know how to make something then you can other people can also use the same recipe the amount of recipes don't doesn't go down so it's non rival if i have a cookie i eat half of it only half of it is available to anybody else for consumption but technology itself is non rival it is cumulative and technology is a function of the stock of technology if you have a large amount of technology then the amount of technology that you'll get next goes up because then you can combine things and discover more things and how to get things done so it's cumulative the flow is a uh, is a function of the stock and the flow is also a function of the population if there are only 5 people in the whole world you can only discover these many recipes but if there are 5 billion people and those many of those billion people are trying to discover re new recipes new technologies so that the amount of technology being in, uh, invented created is very high these days and that means okay i I'd, i'd like to at this point try to distinguish between science engineering and technology science tells you what the world is like okay it is what it answers the question what whereas technology invents it tells you how to do something and engineering is actually the building of something so uh engineering creates things whether it's a bridge or a computer using the technology that we have now you might ask what comes first science or technology sometimes science comes first but many times technology comes first you don't know why it works that way but you just it works so if you know that if you take iron and you put this amount of carbon in it and then you do it this way you know you get a very strong steel but you don't know why it happens that way it only later on you figure out the using metallurgical science as to why steel is harder or better than iron so technology actually is that thing that creates resources there is no such thing as natural resources this is an important point that i'd like to stress there is no such thing as a natural resource coal is not a natural resource iron ore is not a natural resource uranium is not a natural resource they are all stuff on the face of the earth close to the earth or uh, so now what happens is nothing becomes a resource till human minds are applied and human minds discover what to do with it so if you had a mountain of iron ore uh, sitting in your backyard 200 years ago it would not be wealth at all it is nothing no resource at all because nobody knows what to do with iron ore or even petroleum until people figured out that petroleum can be refined into various products 
and how to use them. The internal combustion engine, without the internal combustion engine uh, technology, you would not know what to do with petrol and diesel. Okay. So there are no natural resources and therefore we are not going to ever run out of natural resources because there are no natural resources. There are only stuff on the face of the earth and there's a huge amount of stuff on the face of the earth. So it doesn't matter. We will figure out how to, how to use them. So we are not going to run out of uh, petroleum for the simple reason we would have figured out what the substitutes are by the time we come to the use of this. As they say, the stone age did not end because we ran out of stones. It ended because we figured out how to use metals instead of stones. So technology changes the world. It is the thing that creates capital. And it is the technology which creates new products and processes. And these, the capital and the new products and processes increase our productivity. The word productivity is very, very important. One person producing something, if his productivity goes up, he produces more of that something. So productivity increases as our technology increases. A person with a shovel can do more than a person with his bare hands. So the shovel is capital, which has been produced. And then using that shovel, the person is more productive. But if you have a backhoe, then the person driving the backhoe can do a lot more than just a person with a shovel. So that's exactly how, as time has gone by, we have become more productive. So one person produces a lot more. And this increase in productivity actually brings about structural changes. When you had an agricultural economy, 90% of the people in an agricultural economy work in producing food. And if agricultural productivity goes up, labor productivity goes up, fewer people are required in agriculture. So then they can move to uh, industries and various things like that. So therefore, with technology, you have structural changes in an economy. And economies which are primarily agricultural are poor, and economies that have moved beyond agriculture and into the manufacturing and industrial sectors, that they are the rich countries. As you can well imagine, if everybody was involved in agriculture, 100% of the people, there's nobody left over to do anything else, to produce clothes, build houses, build roads, etc. We'd be all be very poor. And that, you have to remember that India's, 60% of India's labor force is in agriculture. And because 60% is in agriculture, it means that the income of the people in agriculture is limited to the amount of expenditure that the people who are not in agri agriculture have, right? So if people are spending so much on food, that's the income to the agricultural people. So if there's, in the United States in the year 1800, something like 80% of the U US population was in agriculture. And so the, the farmers were poor in that time, and of course the people were also poor in the 1800s. And then in, in the, Right now, the percentage of U.S. labor force in agriculture is 1%. So you can imagine that the farmers in the United States are very rich because they produce food for the remaining 99 people, and therefore their income is pretty high because 99 people have to buy the food from that 1%. So technology and change. Technology produces change. When we say things are changing very rapidly, it just means that we are producing technology at a much rapid pace today. So here's a, a puzzle that when I first came across it some many, many years ago, it, it really puzzled me. It said that we don't really produce any of the things that we consume, and we don't consume any of the things that we produce. Just think about yourself. Your consumption basket includes food, clothing, shelter, transportation, entertainment, and so many other things. But you don't produce any of those things. And what you produce is not what you consume. Just let's take a person who makes shoes. It's not that he only consumes shoes. Maybe a few, but that's about it. It's a very small part of our consumption basket, what we produce. I, I don't produce anything that I consume at all. And so, what is it that bridges the connection between consumption and production? And that is one word, exchange. We exchange stuff. And this exchange allows us to bridge the gap between what we produce and what we consume. So this exchange is also called trade. 
and exchange and trade is the the core idea why we have uh, such great uh, prosperity and trades and exchanges happen in markets there's a technical word for where trades and exchange happen it's called markets now it can need not be any physical location it can be a abstract notion like when i buy a piece of land or a property i don't actually go and pick it up and bring it home like a loaf of bread so it's just that the title changes hands you know the rights to use etc so markets voluntary exchange is the most important thing that is we have to keep in mind now markets are an invention and voluntary and free exchange is what creates the wealth and all the prosperity that you see around us and this i need to first stress again that it is voluntary exchange in markets which are free so free markets voluntary exchange so what are free markets free markets are markets in which there are no barriers to entry or exit that is if i want to sell something in the market i'm allowed to sell it to somebody and what is a free market exit mean that if i don't want to sell to somebody i don't have to sell whether it's my labor whether it's my goods whatever my services i don't have to do it i can exit or enter freely and what is important is to have a market to have exchange you have to have private property i cannot sell you something that i don't own i cannot buy stuff from you that you don't own so it has to be well defined as to who owns what and that enables us to do the exchange and therefore it increases this free markets increase the our abilities to consume and this happens through what is called division of labor division of labor like you make the clothes i make the food and then i exchange clothes for food etc so that is important that exchange part of it now when you div, uh, do division of labor it leads to increases in prosper in productivity so if we had to produce everything that we consume we would be very inefficient so i won't know how to make clothes or how to grow the food etc so someone else grows the food someone makes the clothes and then i do something i bring something in exchange that they value if i bring something that nobody is willing to pay for therefore there won't be a market for it so wealth is created through exchange division of labor and finally division of knowledge see you cannot have division of labor without having division of knowledge that is i know how to program a computer and you know how to uh, maybe uh, uh, do uh, create uh, grow food so free markets uh, create wealth so what right now what i have been talking about is really the fundamentals of economics where economics studies human behavior economics is about trade since we are talking about exchange and it's about trade offs that is when you do something you it forecloses the opportunity for you to do something else and therefore you have to decide should i do this or should i do that so that choice your behavior is about making choices among alternatives that you have and this whole um subject of economics the discipline you could actually say was started you could put a date to it and in 1776 that miraculous year a scottish a scotch scotsman called adam smith wrote a book published a book called an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations basically he was asking why are some nations rich and why some nations are poor and this was here in the year 1776 again let's remember that it's not very long ago it's a 1776 is a little over 250 years approximately 250 years ago it was the year that the 13 colonies of north america declared independence they didn't become independent because they declared they had to fight for it for uh, for a while so the great divergence happened sometime 250 years ago uh, sorry the great enrichment happened 250 years ago but the great divergence also happened why is it that some people some nations became rich even though they all started equally poor so the question that was posed uh, that adam smith tried to address the wealth 
of nations is the question that actually propels all of economic, uh, the, the discipline actually. And uh, personal note, I also started my study of economics with that question because I am trained as an engineer, I'm a mechanical engineer, then I studied computer science and when I ended up working in a corporation in, the, in Silicon Valley in California, Hewlett Packard, I asked myself why is California rich and India so poor and I didn't know the answer. So then I realized that economics informs the question and that's why I studied economics. So here are some numbers, these are only two slides where I'll have numbers. In 1820, US GDP was 2000, China was 740, and India was 1000. Notice that India was, these are all estimates of course, but still ahead of China. In 2016, US had multiplied its per capita GDP 25 times. China had become $12,000, India is 6000 See, China has lagged India's per capita GDP for most of its existence. See that? The red line is China, the blue line is India, and on this graph on the left hand side, it's a log graph. So each division is 10 times as much. So we have 1000, 10,000, 100,000. So these lines are actually much steeper if you were to actually graph it on a regular graph. So recent growth stories. So the US in, 20, in 1953, I'm sorry this is not uh, displaying properly. The first figure is for 1953 and the next figure is for 2014, like 60 years. So the US went from 16,000 to 52,000 in those 60 years. Japan went from 3,000 to 35,000, South Korea from 1,000 to 35,000. So there's catch up. It was one third of Japan, then it caught up, South Korea. Then China went from 1,000 to 12,000 as we have seen before, and India went from 900 to about 5K. These are all, you just to take the magnitudes of the number, you don't have to remember these things, but the main thing is that catch up growth can be very fast. These are all nominal dollars, 2011 nominal dollars, they're called international dollars, there's a way of measuring them. You account for various inflation and various other things, but you don't account for per, per capita, uh, sorry, purchasing power parity. Actually purchasing power parity numbers don't really make much sense, but that's a different story. It is better to talk about nominal. See the main thing is, you don't really go out buy stuff purchasing power, pa power parity basis. You don't go buy oil and go to Saudi Arabia and say, instead of paying you $70 for a barrel or purchasing power parity is such, you must sell it for $13. It doesn't work that way. Everything that we buy in a globalized world, you have to play global, global prices. So nations differ. But the people don't differ. I have, I'm, I'm from India, I've lived and born in India, I lived in the US. I don't see much of a difference between Indians and Americans. Not so that their, their income is 10 times us. They're not 10 times smarter, they're not 10 times hardworking, etc. Not 10 times more educated. Exactly why is it that some nations are rich and some nations are poor? And that brings us to a conjecture that it is Nations differ because they have different degrees of freedom, the people in that nation. And what is freedom will come to it. But the more important point here I'd like to make is that the rules of the system make a difference. Now just take for example, East Germany and West Germany. At one time they were one and the same. After the Second World War, they were divided into East and West. The people were the same, the language was the same, the history was the same, their education level, culture, etc. everything was the same. But over time they diverged. The, the West, Western Germany became rich, East Germany became poor. It's the same story you can tell about, say, uh, South Korea and North Korea. Same people, same country, same geography, same history, etc. so on and so forth. And they divided it, one became communist and the other became capitalist, free market, voluntary exchange etc. And then there, that is what created the difference. So it tells us that there may be something in the conjecture that maybe it is the set of rules that you follow that makes a difference. 
So some people get economic freedom and that leads to prosperity and some people don't. And there are different kinds of freedom. One is economic freedom, political freedom and civic freedoms. But economic freedom is lexicographically prior to the other two. That is if you don't have economic freedom you are unlikely to make much use of the other two freedoms that you have. And this is also very easy to understand. Just think about it this way. How many people vote with their feet to go to a place where they have economic freedom but they don't have any political freedom? You see all the NRIs sitting in the United States, most of them went there with no political freedom. They did, couldn't vote. They didn't have a voice in the government. But they had economic freedom. So they vote with their feet wherever economic freedom is. There are many people who would go to Singapore today. Why? Because they'll get uh, higher income and things like that economic freedom but they will not have they do not have the uh, the uh, political freedom there and maybe they even have restricted civic freedoms so freedom is basically a choice variable people choose how much freedom they want demand because ultimately a collective some in some sense chooses how much freedom they want and that leads to prosperity so the final point in my talk is that constitutions which are the set of rules with the top level set of rules as to how rules are to be made they matter and they define the role of the government the state or the government and they are they define the relationship between the state and the people that relationship can be of equals or could be one of principal agent that is one could be the principal, the other one could be the agent. So suppose the government is the principal, that is the boss, and then the people are the agents, they, they are the servants, they serve the government, as opposed to another kind where the government is this principal and the people are the, uh, uh, sorry, where the people are the principal and the government is just an agent. So since the United States is most the most powerful uh, uh, country in the world, economically powerful and therefore of course militarily powerful. It also has a cultural uh, hegemony also. Here the US has the world's oldest written constitution. Countries have constitution but the US has the one which is the oldest in the world. It is only in, uh, it's written in English. The American constitution is written in English. So anyone who knows how to read English can actually read it. So it's readable. Not only that, it's a very short constitution. It's 4,500 words. The entire constitution is 4,500 words. You can read it over a cup of coffee. And with the amendments that it has, it's only about 7,700 words long. That is, the entire constitution with its amendments is 7,700 words long. Most people have read the American Constitution because it's required reading in school. When you are in the 10th grade, you read the American Constitution. I have a copy of the American Constitution, the entire Constitution and its amendments, 27 amendments. This is it. And it is written in English. Okay, it's written in English. I'll tell you what it means. I can read you the first amendment of the American Constitution. I won't read it because I memorized it. It's the most beautiful piece of writing I've ever come across. It says, Congress shall make no law. Congress, of course, is the name for the legislative body of the American government. First Amendment says, it says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the people to peaceably assemble and petition the government for redressal of grievances. 45 words long and it addresses six important points. It says, Government will not discriminate based on religion. It cannot promote one religion or denigrate it or make people do something against their will. Religion. Freedom of press. It says, uh, sorry, freedom, abridge uh, the freedom of speech. Important words. When you say Congress can make no law abridging the freedom of speech, it means that the freedom of speech pre-exists. The rights pre-exist the Constitution. They do not, the Constitution doesn't grant you rights. Your rights are there, the constitution protects the rights by limiting the power of the government. It says Congress cannot make laws doing this or that, of the freedom of speech or of the press. 
and of the people to peaceably assemble. So it gives you the, it guarantees you that you can assemble, you know, associate with whoever you want. And petition the government for redressal of grievances basically means that you can take the government to court and the court will decide whether you are right or the government is right. The constitution is the thing that protects the citizen from the tyranny of a government because the founding fathers of the United States were very clear about this point that they were afraid of government. There were two things they were afraid of. One is they did not trust democracy and they did not trust government. So that is why they created a republic, a constitutional republic, where the constitution has the power to stop the government from doing what they don't want, the people don't want it to do. So the constitution is the sovereign, okay? It's important to recognize the constitution is the sovereign, not the government. The government is just an instrument that the people have created for their own benefit. Number one, the constitution is not omnipotent. Okay, this is important to recognize the constitution is not omnipotent because the constitution cannot take away certain rights that the people have. They're called natural rights. The constitution makes sure that the government uh, does its job. That's about it. Anyway. So the first 10 amendments to the American Constitution was adopted at the same time as the Constitution is called the Bill of Rights. And I just recited the first of the amendments. There are 10 in total, like which are very important, which protect the citizen from the government. Then in the next 200, 230 years, they added 17 more amendments, two of which cancel each other out. The 18th Amendment and the 21st Amendment, one was for the imposition of prohibition and the other was to the repeal of prohibition. And then, so there are 15 amendments to the American Constitution over a period of 230 years, between once every 15 years or so. And then we have the Indian Constitution. Let's see. Oh, by the way, this is the handwritten, the, the American Constitution is 400 pages. This is one of the, the first page, we the people. The Indian Constitution is uh, the largest constitution in the world, written constitution in the, of a nation, 150,000 words. And it's written in legalese. It's not written in English. So if you were to try to read it, you cannot understand it unless you are legally trained. You have to get a lawyer to say, exactly what does this page mean? And then the lawyer will explain what it means is this. It has 448 articles, whatever. It was amended 103 times. The latest was just a few months ago. It places the government as the principal, it, it, as the boss, and everybody else below as agents or servants. It limits economic and civic freedom and it encodes within it religious and caste discrimination. It says, depending on what religion you are, you will be treated differently by the government. It is one of the most odious, most disturbing feature of Indian constitution that it discriminates against people. And it is a legacy of the British Raj because every rule that you see in the constitution, most of the rules, except the ones that are made later by Nehru and his descendants, they are all made by dead Britishers. It's a British constitution. The Indian government, the British India Government Act of 1935 forms the core of the thing. It was passed by Britishers. Now, James Madison, who was the guy who actually wrote the American constitution, you know, the guy who drafted the American constitution and a whole bunch of like 10 or 20 people, I think 10 people then sat down and discussed about it. Anyway, he said, that it will, it will be of little avail to the people that the laws are made by men of their own choice. If the laws be so voluminous that they cannot be read or so incoherent that they cannot be understood. This is a description of the Indian constitution. I have asked 10,000 people, have you read the Indian constitution? And nobody till date has ever admitted that they have actually read the Indian constitution unless they are the people who actually just read, you know, for professional reasons. Nobody else has read it. So why is not India prosperous? Well, there could be, maybe there are barriers to India's prosperity. And what are the external barriers that you can imagine? Here, here are some. There are possible barriers. For example, it could be that our history is kind of shallow, our culture is kind of worthless. 
the geography is so bad that there are no natural resources, we don't have good navigable rivers, no coastline, so it's hard to do trade. Natural disasters come every now and then re reduce everything that we have built into rubble. Every now and then there are tsunamis and earthquakes that destroy the whole country. Maybe there are civil wars going in for decades, so therefore we can't actually have peace and prosperity. Maybe foreign wars, they are, they are, people are invading us, bombing us all the time. None of these things are true. Well, exactly what's wrong with Indians? If we, are Indians stupid people? I don't think so, because Indians do very well wherever they, wherever they go. So that's also not true. So I, I, I uh, submit to you that maybe it's the government. It's the government and the rules of the game that the government imposes on us. And nations, uh, like I said, differ in the rules that they follow. So people behave differently under different institutional settings. And institutional economics is a very important part of our job. And basically, we study how different people behave differently and the outcomes are different. So the government control of the economy is what is given into the constitution. The constitution allows the government to interfere in the economy. And when the government interferes in the economy, it politicizes the economy. It, the decisions are made based on political reasons, not for rational economic reasons. And the politicization of the economics leads to the corruption of politics. And the corruption of policies leads to bad policies because the policymakers are not there to make good policies. They don't know what good policy is. They are there to line their own pockets. And that leads to the miserization of the people. So that, in short, is the simple answer to why is India poor? And India is poor and they are told, India to, Indians are told India became free, India has democracy, but the freedom and democracy are very, very weakly linked. Firstly, democracy doesn't mean freedom. And the India became independent in 1947, but it never became free because the same rules existed during the British Raj existed afterwards. So if Indians became free post-47, then they, you have to ask why don't you think Indians were free pre-1947. So democracy and freedom are independent variables. You can choose democracy or not choose democracy. You could have authoritarian uh, rule and you could have freedom or no freedom. The authoritarian person can say, everybody go and do whatever you want to do. I'm the authority, authority, my word is law and I say everybody do whatever heck you want to do. That's freedom. Whereas you could also have, which is like uh, Hong Kong. Hong Kong used to be a very poor country once upon a time, it's nation state. It was a very, very poor country. The British ruled it. The people had no political freedom at all. But one guy called Kaupathwait, who was a British administrator, he said, everybody do whatever you want. Buy, sell, trade, make whatever the heck. All I have to look after is make sure that there's no theft, fraud, and force involved. So I am going to enforce the laws, but you can do whatever you want. And then Hong Kong, which used to be one-third as rich per capita, one-third as rich as the British, became one-third richer than the British in just a, a generation. So, free and freedom are two different concepts also. You can make a Faustian bargain that, okay, you'll be given everything free, so people will be getting stuff for free, but they, the only thing they won't be is they won't be free themselves. So the people will be imprisoned. Think about it this way. If you, if you are in a prison in one of these rich countries, the, they provide you health care, free health care, free housing, free everything, education and so on. It's just that they are not free. So the ability to vote for uh, your leaders doesn't make you free in any sense. Suppose I go to a prison and allow the prisoners to vote on who's going to be their prison warden. They are not free people even though they get, get to freely choose their leader. A state that is large enough to give everything is powerful enough to take everything from you. It's an old adage. There are three types of states. You can think of the state as a protective state or a minimal or a night marchman state. A state which makes sure that there is no froze, fraud and theft. But everything else is not the state's job. You do whatever you want. It doesn't provide you with anything. It does not say, okay, I am going to help the poor or take the, from the rich, nothing like that. 
the productive state is which produces goods and services not not just uh, the usual protective part of it and then you have the redistributive state which says you know what there are poor people we have to take under take care of the poor people and therefore we have to give them whatever by taking from some somebody else because remember state does not actually produce anything so it has to take from someone else to give to somebody else is redistributive state so the three kinds of state we have to ask what what is it that is wrong with state power if the state power has power states tend to destroy actually and this is true think about it this way have you thought of the fact that wars are conducted by states the average per citizen doesn't get up and say okay you know i'm going just going to go and attack this particular country a government has to be involved in it and therefore most of the power that the state has the more the power the state has the more destructive it is lord acton he was a british statesman he had made a very interesting uh, observation and i'm sure many of you must have heard about this observation he says power tends to corrupt important thing to remember here is he said power tends to corrupt he didn't say power corrupts power tends to corrupt it depends on the person the amount of power so on but absolute power and states tend to destroy and absolute state power destroys absolutely is my paraphrasing of the same thing now what's a state a state is that institution that has a legitimate monopoly on the use of violence within a territory this description of the state is concisely tells you what exactly is different between a state and everything else what is a corporation what is this or that what is important about the state it has a monopoly a legal monopoly on the use of force within a territory and this particular part that it has a monopoly on the use of force has implications and the implications are this that it therefore the state must be prohibited from engaging in any activity that does not intrinsically involve violence it's a very simple logical proposition because this guy has a gun he should not be allowed to do anything that does not involve violence education charity transportation communications manufacturing agriculture religion state services social services healthcare housing power generation media nothing the state has no business to be in business why why not charity don't you believe in helping the poor yeah of course i believe in helping the poor if i come to you and say madam will you give me 10 rupees because i need to help the poor people around you'll happily give me 10 rupees but if i come to your door with a gun in my hand and i say madam if you do not give me the 10 rupees i need to help those people i'm going to shoot you that whole thing becomes vitiates the whole enterprise it's kind of silly to force somebody to do that so that is why because ultimately the government every rule that the government has whether it's taxing or anything is at the end of the day there's a gun behind it because if you don't pay the tax whether the tax is used for good or bad i don't care if you don't pay the tax the police will come if you resist arrest they will use force and put you in jail if you resist that they will shoot you everything there's a gun and because the the state has the gun it must be prohibited from so the pay, state responsibility because they have the gun is to maintain law law and order protect private property because we said private property is very important for prosperity enforce contracts because we need to sometimes have contracts we can't get things done every uh, immediately so we have to have con con uh, contracts punish force fraud and theft and enforce the constitution the state has to enforce the constitution and therefore why not the government because private enterprise is one side and government is the other side one side private enterprise is a cooperative sector the other sector is coercive sector everything that the government does is coercion one creates wealth one destroys wealth paternalistic governments create dependencies and conflict and there are deadweight losses or rent seeking so what we have to do is limit the state power by separating the power to legislate to tax and to spend 
because right now in India you have one un entity, usually one person, who decides what the law is going to be, who decides how much is going to be taxed and what to spend it on. One day the man can get up and say, oh, let's demonetize, let's, everybody's money is worthless today. That is called the too much power. And so what you have to do is separate these things and the path to prosperity therefore is you need to have free markets, you have limited government, you have economic freedom and all this is not something we are making up today from uh, fresh cloth, it is old hat. It has been happening in various countries, there are lessons, 100 years of lesson which tells you which, what works and what doesn't. Why India won't do that is a different story. So, what is the only legitimate use of state power? John Stuart Mill had said the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised against a member, against his will is to prevent harm to others. His own good, either physical or moral, is not a sufficient warrant. That is an important thing. These are the people of enlightenment and these are the people who were read by the founders of the American for, uh, uh, nation and that is why they are uh, prosperous. The path forward for India is it has to, there should be constitutional change which guarantees economic freedom and private property rights. Today Indians don't have a right to property, most people don't know this but they, they don't have a fundamental right to property. The government can come and take away your property anytime it wants. And I have written a constitution of India which is four pages long. Did anyone get a copy of that? Okay, good. Take a look at it. Uh, get back to me sometime. Feel free to get in touch. My email address is this. Uh, if you want, you can have a copy of the slides on request or I can put it up on Twitter or something like that. I have taken a good time. Thank you.